2020 has been a year unlike any other. People are waking up to the fact that decisions that they make and decisions that they don't make have real consequences on their own lives and the lives of their fellow humans. One change I've made, both for myself and the planet this year, is to wear carbon-neutral, plant-based running shoes. I now rock Allbirds Tree Dashers. They're made of premium natural materials and are sustainably produced, on top of looking dope and being the most comfortable running shoes I've ever owned. When I wear Allbirds, I know I'm taking care of my feet and Mother Earth. Learn about Allbirds' commitment to leaving the planet better than they found it and cop your own pair of kicks today at allbirds.com. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Taisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? It's your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. I am so excited to share this week's conversation with you. It features two artists whose work I am absolutely enamored with. Perfume Genius in conversation with playwright Jeremy O'Harris. To help me set up this conversation, joining from the City of Wind. It's Josh Modell. What's up, Elia? Hey, hey, we have an executive editor on the line, baby. Oh, yeah. You don't get one of those every day. Josh, you first caught this talk when we did it as a TalkHouse podcast live on Insta. And it's so great to be able to blast it out to the world on our podcast as well. Absolutely. It was really fun to watch them on Instagram. And now we can listen back and enjoy the nuance. And Josh, a little bit of background on their relationship. Mike Hadrius, aka Perfume Genius, saw Jeremy O'Harris's slave play on Broadway and was totally blown away. It turns out Jeremy has been a lifelong Perfume Genius, I think it's safe to say fanatic, as you'll see in this conversation. Yeah, he's an expert. He's deep cuts. He really is. And the two became Twitter friends. They'd met in person very quickly, but this is their very first conversation. And not to spoil it, but it ends with them talking about getting together ASAP. Josh, I think that everyone we pair these days is talking about collaborating. We are on fire, man. Um, Talkhouse is going to get some kind of residual from anything that comes out of this. Uh, it's in the contracts. A musical, perhaps, that Mike and Jeremy write together in a year. It could happen. Now, I've been blessed to see both Jeremy and Mike's work live and had very powerful experiences at each performance. I first saw Perfume Genius at the late lamented indie venue Glasslands in Brooklyn back in 2012. You won't believe this, man. Michael Stipe stood next to me in the crowd and quietly sang harmonies the whole time. That's amazing. Not even getting paid, I assume. No, and I asked him later, why didn't you get on stage, you know, <laughs> to, to join for a song or two? And he said, I didn't want to steal any of the limelight. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. I also got to see Slave play the week before its Broadway run ended and was totally floored. The show is just incredible, top to bottom. Without giving too much away, Josh, I, I know this hasn't toured to Chicago yet. I'm sure there will be a touring run once the pandemic is over, but Slave Play uses three interracial couples to examine the history and current state of racial trauma in America. And as I left the theater, I said to my wife, this should be mandatory viewing for all white Americans once they hit maybe 18 years old. Just incredible. Yeah, one thing that ties these two guys together is they are absolutely fearless artists. And as you hear Jeremy say during the talk, they're both really good at, quote, writing complicated narratives about their sexuality and trauma. 
And yet somehow it's a fun, light talk. It is. It is. The guys touch on some very deep stuff here, but the tone is definitely very upbeat. They were so obviously psyched to chop it up with each other finally. Definitely. So yeah, Mike has been releasing music as Perfume Genius for about a decade now. Record after record, increasingly confident, increasingly great. Increasingly glam, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely glam. And really like beautiful music, but also unafraid to explore the bounds of sexuality, domestic abuse, and the dangers faced by gay men, which makes this kind of a, the perfect pairing, Jeremy and Mike together, talking about stuff that they've both really dealt with in their lives and in their art. The latest Perfume Genius album came out earlier this year. It has an excellent title, Set My Heart on Fire Immediately. Boom. I love it. Yeah. This just might be his best yet. But then again, you kind of say that with every new one because you're so excited totally. that there's a new Perfume Genius record in the world. Absolutely. From that excellently titled album, let's check out the track, on the floor. I love that track, Josh. So great. So great. So Elia, I was not familiar with Jeremy O'Harris before this talk, and I found him completely charming. Tell me about his work. I am happy to talk about Jeremy's work any chance I get. This guy is really incredible. I think it's really fair to say, Josh, that with his exploration of black and queer experiences in both Slave Play and his earlier show, Daddy, he has deeply changed what the next generation of theater goers looks like. And that's not just because Rihanna was caught texting Jeremy mid-show at Slave Play. <laughs> In all of his work, Jeremy puts under the microscope America's huge issues of race and the intricacies of the queer experience. Jeremy's most recent performances were a very brief one performance only on Fire Island of his play Water Sports or Insignificant White Boys. And last year, he did a show called Black Exhibition, a show in a small theater that opened secretly in Brooklyn under a fake name. We'll let Jeremy talk about that more in this conversation with Mike. And Josh, the two do really get into quite a bit here. Jeremy had a lot of questions for Mike, questions that he's been thinking about for many years as a huge Perfume Genius fan. Yeah, he was really gushing. I loved it. It's great. And they talk about pushing artistic boundaries, getting out of their comfort zones, and uh, at one point, showing the world your metaphorical and literal asshole. <laughs> These are performers who are not happy just doing the same thing again and again. They talk about their artistic processes. They also spill tea on some amazing celebs, one that Mike wrote with, one that Jeremy is getting ready to work with. And I learned two new words. Uh, one is gayosity. They were talked about elements <laughs> of gayosity. And, uh, and another point, Jeremy refers to a performance that he saw of Mike as all twonked out, which I thought was fantastic. Yes. Should we roll the tape? Let's hear it. We're just going to wait for Perfume Genius to show up. This is really crazy for me because, um, yeah, he's my, uh, an idol, you know, going to lower my heart rate a bit and um, be chill about this because he's a person and I'm a person. 
He just happened to be my favorite person since I was 18. Oh, he's here. Okay, here we go. <laughs> what would you like to be called? Would you like to be called Mike or Perfume Genius? Oh, Mike is fine. <laughs> what would you like to be <laughs> called? Um, I would like to be called uh, your savior. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Jeremy, Jeremy is fine. Sure. <laughs> okay, great. Let's call each other that. Let's call, okay, we're going to call each other by our real names. How are you doing today? I'm okay. I chipped my tooth three days ago. I know you told me about that. How did you do that? I bit into a piece of Sri Lankan bread um, <laughs> while I was at a shoot. And sure. I feel like I'm, I'm an early, like representation of Perfume Genius or something. You know, when you used to show up bruised on album covers and... Okay. Yeah, yeah, I've, I'm harking I remember back. that time. You need a piece of pizza, though. You have to balance it out with something cheeky, like a muffin <laughs> or something. Um, does wine count? Is that cheeky <laughs> wine enough? Wine counts, yeah. <laughs> that counts. I wanted to talk to you a bit about you as a musician and how important you've been to me. Is that okay? Can I embarrass you like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so I I have a very real memory of the first time I heard one of your songs. And it happened when I, it was, because I used to be like a big pitchfork freak. Um, and I still am. It's like one of those things where I wake up every morning, I like check Twitter, I check Instagram, I ignore my email, and then I look at pitchfork. It's like pitchfork is where I get most of my news. Yeah. And when they did a feature about the song Mr. Peterson and made it Bessie Music. I was like, who is this person? And like, how did they write something that felt so close to my own psyche and my own feelings of complexity and complicity inside of situations of like uh, abuse or intimacy with older partners? Like, that was something that I found so stunning that you could be so raw and vulnerable in that way. And I wonder, like, were you always someone that was so open with the with your wounds with other people? Or did you come into that? I think I was in a way. And I think in my family, you know, there are things going on, but they were always talked about. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. they weren't fixed. It wasn't tidy, but it was, like, out in the open. I think that helped. And I think I consciously needed to share stuff that was messy and have it be warm and dark and complicated and have that all be included in the thing I'm sharing instead of trying to, um, I don't know, have a lesson in it or, I mean, there's a lesson eventually and there's a lesson even in doing that. But I mean, it was really freeing for me once I just started kind of sharing. I feel like when I knew I was going to be listened to, like when I first wrote all those songs, I thought I would share them with like my best friends and my other friends that make music just to show them that I've done something because I was not, I hadn't done anything, you know? Yeah. But then it's become more difficult to um, to share in that way the longer that it's gone on, in that specific way. Share in like a really honest way? Yeah, or in a way that's not trying so hard to do something, you know? Yes, yes. I never keep the songs where I'm really doing that. There's always like a balance, but... I don't know. I mean, I was taking it seriously, but not the way that I do now. Now I'm like dead serious, like all the time. Yes. Everything I do has to be fucking amazing. And it has to yeah. be, you know, it's different now. I love that. I did another podcast earlier today. The guy that was interviewing me was like, I felt like when I saw your play, it was really shocking because so much of it felt like you had made a mistake. 
And like, <laughs> it was like so many people like make everything. So many writers pride themselves on creating things that are hermetically sealed and given to an audience like perfectly. And mm-hmm. he was like, and you don't seem to want to do that. And I said that I think it's because I enjoy messy art. Like I think that art should be a little messy and you should constantly be trying to fail a little bit and maybe doing something that doesn't work because how else will you know if you are going to some unknown space, right? Like if you're doing something you know works, you don't, then there's no way that you can invent anything, right? Right. And I feel like you constantly have shown, even if you've allowed your music to get more um, clean or less messy, like, you know, you don't hear the sort of piano pedals anymore when you write a song, you know what I mean? You're not singing in your living room anymore, Mm -hmm. but you do seem to keep trying to challenge yourself. Like, what drew you to wanting to engage with choreography and like dance in a way? Because I feel like that was a space where you allowed yourself to be open to failure, you know, publicly. Well, I mean, and that's, that's why I did it, essentially. Just going into the studio for the second record was enough of that for me. Just enough of a mm-hmm. newness and a scariness to know that I was going to be in a place where I feel like good work comes from for me, which I guess is being uncomfortable in some way or just like pushing myself. I mean, I write about my body all the time. Like I say body like a million times every single <laughs> song even. But I'm yes. I, always like as an idea, you know what I mean? Or as like a concept mm-hmm. or something. And then something about the dance was like, well, I'm going to actually be in mine and be with other bodies. And I knew that it would challenge me, my ideas of like health and aging and all this stuff that I don't really want to like name. <laughs> even those yeah. last two. But I knew something would come from it. And I knew that it was going to be difficult. Yeah. I want to go back to something you mentioned because it, it was something I wanted to ask you because I feel like it's something that was a part of, of, of the myth of Perfume Genius that I, like, in thinking about all the things I wanted to ask you since I was, like, 19, um, <laughs> I, uh, I remembered again. And I was like, oh, yeah. Is it actually true that your first album or your first songs were like sort of stolen from you and given to the world? Like not stolen, but like someone got one of your songs and then sent them out somewhere without you really knowing it was going to happen. And then the perfume genius like identity started to form. Or were you like more actively a mechanic of your own of your own like journey as an artist? Does that make sense? I think so. I don't I don't feel like it happened that way. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing and I wasn't like consciously trying. I was not ambitious in any way, but I was, mm-hmm. you know, picking photos that I thought would like have would be create some kind of world with the music and the songs, you know, and especially as more people started listening to like the MySpace and stuff. I, I was trying to make it a thing, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And like when the record label contacted me, it was very like baffling to me, you know? How did that happen? Like, what was that first conversation with the record label like? Do you remember it? It was, I was in the top eight of my friend's band and my space top eight. And then mm-hmm. through that, this Welsh label and management company wrote me and asked if I wanted to meet. And then, so they flew out and met me in Seattle. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> yeah. And what songs were they listening to? Like, what songs were on your MySpace when you were in your friend's top eight? Mr. Peterson, a learning, and just a few songs from the first record. I think after I got the deal, I wrote and recorded like two or three more, but I had yeah. most of them done by that point. 
And something else I realized was because I think in my mind, you're like sort of like a permanent twink in like the best <laughs> way. You know what I mean? Like you're always sort of like consistently 26 in my imagination. <laughs> um, and so I was sort of like shocked to realize that like your first album came out around the time that I went to grad school. Like mm-hmm. um, this moment where I was like 27. So in a lot of ways, I was a little bit older than a, than some of my favorite playwrights were when they got started or like had went to grad school. And yet, like, I still felt really young. And it wasn't until after Slave Play went to Broadway and I was like, and I had my 31st birthday. I was like, oh, wow. Like, I had my big success, like, a little bit later than everyone else. You know what I mean? Like, still really young and like. That's late? That seems young to me. I mean, I I came of age in the time of like Lena Dunham. You know what I mean? Like, it's like people like being like their biggest self at like 25 or something. Wow. And then I'm also seeing all these really young, amazing 24-year-olds who are writing circles around me already, you know? Mm. Um, And I'm just like, fuck, like, and so I don't know, like, how does it feel to have come into your own as an artist, not in your 20s, but like sort of in your 30s, like to have like grown as also your star has risen in like the hugest way, as you're um, in a sense, in a more stable position in your life? Right. No, because 30 is a bit more stable than 20 in some ways. For sure. I feel like I felt that for a long time. And now it's all kind of been like, it's all like gone for me. I felt a sense of stability and like, I was always really anxious and I'm, I've always been, you know, I've had my issues and stuff, but I felt at least like a root, like a center that I would mainly be away from all the time, but I knew what the center was. And right now, and for a while, I don't feel like I have that. So I just feel like I'm just like flailing around, which feels weird during like a record cycle and to be like talking in some like official way when I don't feel like <laughs> I have um, like a center. <laughs> but the whole world doesn't really have one. But I feel like I was kind of shedding my center for for months before all this too. <laughs> yeah, I think so often about going to your first concert I saw you in in Chicago, where you seem to be like battling some like wild and untenable uh, anxiety that, like, I had never seen from a live performer before. It was, like, so (laughs) endearing and beautiful to watch you, like, almost, like, afraid to, like, show us how talented you were, you know? And then to go to the second record, you came out, you had this, like, black, like, sheer thing over your face. Do you you remember what tour that was? Yeah, or, like, it was, like, you had, like, a sheer shirt on. I was doing a lot of sheer. Yeah, it was, like, black and sheer. And, like, you were, uh-huh. like, actually, like, I fuck. And I was, like, whoa, <laughs> like, perfume genius. Like, what is uh-huh. going on? You're not, like, at the piano anymore. And, like, you know, I felt like the culmination of that was set my heart on fire immediately, where you're, like, on the cover, you know, you're bod is like twonked out and like you are like owning your sexuality in a different way I think and like how virile your like adult male body could be and I wondered like what that journey was like for you because it feels like you shed something to get to that place yeah I mean it was very strange for me to be like in my body my actual body not trying to get out of it or thinking of how it could be different I think what kind of shook me and why like the center feels gone is that I realized I haven't really been pursuing anything that I think might actually make me happy or feel good for a really long time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I thought a lot about what wasn't making me happy or what I needed to do differently. Like I was thinking a lot all the time, but I never really was moving towards anything warm really. And somehow through the dance and kind of feeling healthier and, and the people I was around all the time and 
I was like, oh, I'm like enjoying, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying dancing, I'm enjoying singing, I'm enjoying being in my body. And I don't necessarily feel like I ever really enjoyed performing or singing. <laughs> Not in a bad way, like I love yeah. it. And it's like important to me, it was the most, it's the most important, heaviest feeling I've ever had was when I'm making stuff, but I've never really en- enjoyed it. It's always yeah. been terrifying. And I thought it had to be in order to be good, that it had to be difficult and hard, but something, change where I felt like I could move towards like a kindness to myself or just an enjoyment of things. Yeah. And that's that wouldn't lose, you know, that wouldn't be boring. I always was scared that that would be boring or like I got sober and I started making music. I don't have this idea that like you have to be in like a dark place and you have to be fucked (laughs) up to make dark and fucked up stuff. I've known that that's not true for a long time, but I thought I have to keep myself uncomfortable and like freaked out or else what am I, I'm not going to want to do anything. You know what I mean? Actually thinking about it now, like it probably was even more so uncomfortable to be sharing so much of like your past with a partner who was making you so happy as well. Right. Because like having your boyfriend be one of the main creative partners in your work must mm-hmm. have been both like terrifying and freeing at the same time. Or was it not? Like, what was it for you? I mean, I have no frame of reference for it. Like I'd never made anything. I'd never sang in front of people. We played every single show together. And, you know, besides the first songs, he's also been there for every song I've ever written. And now he's even writing more with me. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, it would be like, I'd play him a song. Like we'd have like a nice day. And there's like, oh, listen to the song that I made. And it was just, fucking like, just a brutal song and to be like what is going on <laughs> with you, you know? yes. and I would just you know just had to explain that I'm just kind of distilling a feeling you know something it's not like those go away when I'm happy I just don't feel like that like I can feel better but it's I'm still carrying it all with me all the time it's always yeah. like in tandem the other part's just like resting and letting this this part <laughs> speak for a little bit yeah I relate to that so deeply because uh, so I'm in like my first like long term relationship right now, like my first like healthy long term. I mean, like there yeah. are definitely guys that like I saw for over two years, but like they didn't actually they weren't good people. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> um, most of them were trash. And I'm finally dating my first person who's like a good person. Mm-hmm. And I got invited to the Vanity Fair party this year. And like afterwards, I was so sad and he was like, what's making you sad? And I'm, and, and he was like, you know, how can I make you happy? I was like, listen, you can't ever make me happy. Like, it doesn't matter how many times, like, I'm in a magazine or someone says that I'm whatever. I'm going to always have this well of sadness. And, like, part of you loving me is going to have to be, like, being okay with, like, me being dark and sad even at happy moments or s- things that people feel are happy moments. Yeah. And he just looked at me and was like, okay. Like, Ooh. I get that. Like, I'll hold space for that. I like that response. It was a great response. It's like one yeah. of the main reasons that I was like, oh, I can't really like let this one go, even if I want to keep trying to self-sabotage it every right. step of the way. This show is brought to you by Patreon, who ask creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans. 
In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. I think that you've written about exuberance and um, freedom in the abject. Do you think there will be a moment when you might write about like true or pure happiness, like uncomplicated happiness, or is that uninteresting to you? And you could have already done it as well. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever fully, fully gone there. I mean, when people are able to do that, it's like revolutionary to me, but I think it's insanely difficult to be able to do that and not have it feel like preachy or corny. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'm even gonna like get there. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't. I don't mind anymore. I, I kind of don't mind it. I don't mind it all existing at the same time and having moments where that feels really like you're fully in it, and the moments where you're you're sucked out of it. You know, like I think I just have to make room more for all of that to happen with like minute to minute. It's okay. That doesn't. That's not some uh, formula. No, there isn't. How do you keep yourself in a like a place or do you not feel like you have to keep yourself in a place to make work some sort of like spiritual mental place there are definitely spaces where I'm like, this isn't conducive to work. One of those spaces being the last seven months. <laughs> like, <it's> like <laughs> nothing about, like all people want me to do is work and all people want to ask me about is what I'm working on. And all mm. I wanted to focus on in my private life is watching anime, getting in touch with new erotics that I've never had the chance to. And, and like watching like, you know, the world fall apart around me and yeah. like process the fact that like we're living in a dystopia, right? And so I know that like in that in this moment where I'm processing all of that and engaging with all these new things in my body and like taking in this new art form that I used to love, but I haven't engaged with in a long time, I'm actually getting myself ready or setting the foundations up for myself to be in a place where I can write again and write Um. well. Because I feel like I'm someone who like I do write a lot more than I think a lot of other people do. But I also think that like this need to like constantly put something into the world that like everyone asks of me or to put things into the world that other people are asking me to put into the world is a stifling energy. And it's something that's like very unconducive to actually like being allowed to fail or being allowed to like go in a different direction. So like something I did to like help myself get out of a funk of not wanting to work was I wrote a play that I had to act in Mm-hmm. called Black Exhibition. And it was a play where I, it was a choreo poem. So I danced, I like wore a jock strap the entire time. And I put myself inside of a space in front of a tiny audience that like I would have never done five months ago. Because mm-hmm. I was like, Jeremy, the, the the most frightening thing is like having a play. I mean, I think that like, um, this might be what you feel the next time you go into a studio. Like you had a 9.0 on Pitchfork or whatever and like this wildly yeah. like allotted new album. So writing a new song must feel really terrifying sometimes, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because that dopamine rush of getting positive review is like, it's like uh, incomparable, right? 
And so like I've wanted to get myself out of that feeling that I needed that dopamine rush where I was like, write the one thing that you don't think any critic could love or hate. Like write <laughs> something that just like will freak them the fuck out. Yeah. So I showed them my asshole and like okay. for like an hour in a play. And like that got me into a better space. I would have written about that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I think we're, I think as artists, we have to constantly be re-engaging with what we need to tell it. Because I think the things you needed to make learning are very different than the things you needed to write, put your back into it, right? Yeah, well, and not writing is part of writing to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm always having these conversations about like what I should be doing, but I actually have to do it too. You know what I mean? Like yes. it has to be done. Yes. And it like... I can tell sometimes I'm very like conscious of that I'm doing nothing. Like to everybody else, it looks like I'm aggressively not doing anything. And to me, <laughs> it's like, I'm like, I can feel in the back of my head, I am preparing to do something, you know? Yes. Like some, yes. I'm like taking things in or processing things that just happen, but I can't just like go. I need some sort of like perspective. Yes. Or I don't know, maybe I'm lazy. I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter anyways, because you're talking to me. And I'm the one that's going to be making it. And it's been hard for me to like advocate for myself and sort of like really realize this is how I need to work. I might not look like how everybody else wants me to do it, but it's hard to like advocate for yourself if you don't like think or work in a traditional way. And I'm also not used to like being assertive about what I need for that. I'm used to just doing it, you know? I mean, people would have to suffer the consequences of me doing it before. Because, like, Mm -hmm. I was, like, avoidant or, like, very hermity or manic, whatever, whatever space I was in in order to make stuff. But I have to still, I still have to go to all those places. So how do I fit, how do you do that in this, like, more official capacity where you're talking about it all the time, too? It's really difficult. Yes. It's, like, wild that, like, you know, these major pop musicians keep, like, you know, finding their way down into the depths of like indie music and like, you know, scrolling through old Gorilla versus Bear articles and being like, oh, maybe I should collab with them. And uh-huh. um, like, you know, have you been asked by like a Taylor Swift or like a Troy Sivan or like some major pop person to enter into their camp in some way? Or have you have you been able to avoid all of that? Um, I did one like co-writing session with a pop musician and I don't. Who was it? Tell us who it is. It's King Princess. Oh my God, I love her. Me too. And I had never done anything like that before. And I'd never written in like a room full of people. I've never written with anyone else there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm also not the kind of musician that's like, hey, how about like a B flat here? (laughs) Something you're like, and like I can't just like. So I remember just like playing like a Cocteau Twins song. And I was like, well, what about like, and then I would just like play it. Like, what about like kind of this, like something like that. And then I played like the keyboard and I was just like, put a bunch of reverb on it. And I was just like, blah, 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 blah. and nothing oh really God. came from it, but it was fun. But I think- That's amazing. I think it would require specific kind of resources that I would have to like really like learn. Yeah. I think I could write songs for other people, but from jump, like starting at the beginning with writing, I think that that would be like a process for sure. Yeah, yeah. It would have to be like a song. You're like, this is an old song and I'll give it to you. Yeah. What about you? Well, I mean, the thing that's been really difficult is that some idols who are actors have come to me and asked me to do big things with them. And like this year, I said no to a bunch of people that I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, But then 
there were two specific people that came directly to me and were like, hey, babe, like, I have this idea. I think you'd be great for it. And I was like, well, fuck my brain. Like, if, like, if, like, you know, whatever. I'm going to give, like, a little thing here and, like, just sure. if everyone can pretend, like, whatever. Um, but, like, <laughs> if, like, Laura Dern comes to you and says, like, write something with me, you don't say no. You do not, no. Um, and so I said yes. Um, so I'm doing this weird thing with her that's, like, really, really, really exhilarating and, like, so, but it's also so out of my wheelhouse because, like, everything I've written, I've written for literally either myself to act in or my friends to act in, right? right? Like, you know, when I wrote Slave Play, I was writing that play for my friend Amanla in grad school, thinking it was going to be my grad school play that, like, maybe when we graduated, I could do downtown with Amanla, you mm. know? And, like, I also wrote one of the roles for my friend James Cusati Moyer, who's in the play on Broadway. And, like, you know, I... I, I tried to like bespoke things to people I truly know, but to bespoke something to an idol is so crazy to me. Yeah. That I'm like, how the fuck do I, um, how do I do it? But I, I think it was really fun to just jump off a boat and try to do that with someone, you know? For sure. Yeah. I'm thinking about something else that you tweeted, thinking about songwriting. <laughs> like I tweeted about this and I wanted to talk to you about um, the fact that Early on, and I Googled it, and I found the interview. It was in your first I think I remember interview. it. The City High song. It was, a, it was yes. like one of the first interviews I ever did, period, I think. Oh, my God. Mm. I love What Would You Do so much. <laughs> it was one of our songs in my conservatory, like the acting conservatory I went to, that, like, we would all sing together. And re-listening to it today, I was like, this is the craziest, it's like, crazy. song and it's good. lyrically. It's good. It's like, really melodically, good. it's super good. I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> yes. Too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's like fully a song where they like slut shame like... a sex worker, but it's so good. <laughs> I think I kind of remember the video. Does she just come out and sing the chorus? Is it just like, does she just pop out and sing the chorus? No, so she's like, so I rewatched the video and she's like dancing in the place. She's like a, like a stripper and this guy like pulls her outside and they're on a roof together and he's like. Oh, so they do the whole story in the video. Yes, and then she responds to him, and then they keep cutting back to the stoop where a girl who's, like, defending her, who's, like, I guess in City High, is like, no, but that's my friend. Like, mm. she's just doing what she has to do. And it's, like, so fucked up. <laughs> but I actually love that kind of storytelling, and I love that you, like, have engaged with, like, Rory Orberson on your new album. I'm, I said that name horribly, but whatever. Um, That happens. Um, <laughs> And I wonder if there's, like... If there's a world for you where you see yourself entering into like a late because like what I liked about this album a lot was that not only did you engage with some of the electronics things that you've done and like sort of the classic lyricism that like it's one of the things you, like your pen is so fucking good man and like I don't know if people Thank tell you, you that enough but your pen is so strong I appreciate and, that and um, so you engage with all those things but there's there seemed to be a bit more of a twang behind um, some of the guitar licks that like reminded me of country music and reminded me. Of of um god what is her name what is the name of the woman that wrote fancy and that other really amazing song um fuck i'm gonna remember this my friend from twitter gage just reminded me that it's bobby gentry who's one of the greatest songwriters of all time and i discovered her this summer because she wrote a song called ode to billy joe um, which, I think I know, if you haven't I heard it before, you have to listen to it. It's so fucking good. Oh my god, thank you. I just had wine delivered. Ooh, wine um, delivery. I'm gonna, I'm gonna crack yes. open a diet coke. Oh. Mm. Let's do it. Cheers. <laughs> 
Um, but Bobby Gentry wrote a song called Ode to Billy Joe, where she's telling a story. It's like in the third person of this like family who's eating dinner and they hear that this kid, Billy Joe, just like jumped off a bridge. Mm-hmm. I think I know that song. And there's all these weird details in it. And you're like, wait, like, was the daughter having an affair with him and did he jump off because like they had an abortion or like whatever the fuck it is, but it's like so psychotic. And I see there being a (laughs) chance for you to enter into a space of pure storytelling in your music. Because like when I was reading Cleanness by Garth Greenwell, I was like, oh, the only other space where I've seen this type of like understanding of like queer submission and queer erotics is in Perfume Genius's music. And I was like, oh, I wonder if Perfume Genius would ever write an opera or like move in sort of that space. And then when I was listening to your new album and you had all those like country licks, I was like, he has a country musician inside of him. That wasn't a question at all. (laughs) (laughs) That that wasn't a song at all. That wasn't a question. That was just a statement about how great you are. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, I've been thinking about that. I purposely tried to write more like that with this record because I felt like I got away from that a little bit. I talked more, started thinking more about like ideas and like concepts and stuff and not about things, you know what I mean? And people Mm -hmm. and like making a story for all that stuff to live in instead of just talking about what it's about, you know? Yeah. Um, And I much prefer my lyrics when I write in that way. I would want to do some sort of theater. We should do that. We should absolutely do that. But I have always thought, like, if I'm going to write a book, I cannot, it cannot be about, like, me. Like, my coming yes. out story or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm just, I know I could do that, but I'm terrified. I'm terrified of, like, I'm terrified of that. I mean, there will always be elements of that sort of, like, gayosity in, in the yes. thing, but I don't want it to be explicitly, like, I don't know, the suburb I grew up in or something. Well, I think even when you write a song like Mr. Peterson or Jason, it's hard as a listener to know if it's autofiction or biography. Yeah. Or if it's pure fiction, right? Do you like that sort of obfuscation or the ability to obfuscate, like, whether or not it's truly about, like, something that, like, Mike lives through? Or do you like it being inside of Perfume Genius's realm of, like, is it Mike or is it just, like, the queer ether of, like, abject relationships. I mean, it's kind of all of that. But it's complicated for me sometimes because I know it's going to be taken by a lot of people, like, it directly, it's 100% my experience. And while a lot of it is just, like, it'll start with my experience and then I will put little fictions around it to make it a better song or to make it (laughs) more helpful to me to share, you know what I mean? Or just to dramatize it, really, like... Did you steal the $20? This is the thing. I didn't think I did. And then my <laughs> friend told me, I remember you calling me and told, telling me you did that. And so, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have definitely done that, but I don't know if it was that specific time that I wrote about. That, that line is one of the most triggering lines of music I heard mm. this year. That and the two, like, did you hear Moses Sumney's album? I've heard it, but I haven't, like, deeply listened to it. Moses Sumney has a song called Two Dogs. And it's about, like, these two dogs that his family had. And, like, they, like, left them outside. And they the dogs die. It's like, sorry, spoiler alert, the dogs die. Okay. But, like, 
you stealing $20 and the dogs dying outside reminded me of two specific, it's like so viscerally reminded me of two things that like happened in my childhood that like, like rocked me to my fucking core. And I felt like that level of specificity and verisimilitude, like being able to live inside of a melody and like at odds with the melody sometimes is Uh a sort of magic trick. I don't, I don't understand that how music how musicians have, and I feel like it's a magic trick that you specifically grew into in sort of the the, the mix of like um uh, sort of like discomforting melodies to like the end of a story. I wonder like how how did you go on like this sort of melodic journey where you start with a song like Mr. Peterson and you end the decade later you're writing a song like Jason like they're both ostensibly similar types of songs but Jason like elongates vowels in these really wild yeah. ways and like takes melodies to new heights and is constantly shifting directionalities in a way where like Mr. Peterson is like a straightforward melodic song how did you feel like you learned that over the last decade I mean, I'm still, I mean, I'm not surprised anymore when I write a song. I used to be for like seven years. Every time I would write a song, I'd be like, how did I do that? I'm not surprised anymore. And that came with another, with like a kind of, like kind of leaning into a command that I've never really like leaned into before. Like, uh, you know what I mean? And I wanted specifically to do that on this record, to be like, I'm a singer. I'm singing to you. These are my songs for you. You know what I mean? Like in a way that I've never really done that before. I felt like I was just kind of doing it and then being like witnessed. I wasn't like purposely like giving it to to people or preparing it in this way. And at first I felt like almost like really indulgent writing like that, but I kind of was getting off on it too. So I felt that was more important. (laughs) So I I mean, I have no idea really. I think a lot of it is just practice and just, I feel musically much more capable than I did in the beginning. You know, I could really, I felt like I could really just play chords and sing. And now Mm -hmm. I can do like two more (laughs) chords or something, (laughs) you know. I don't, I really still, I don't know how it happens. I mean, I'm very much like a hippie about it. I think of it as this like channeling, like hippie spiritual thing. And then I, then I bring like math and lyrics and stuff into it after the initial thing happens yeah um but i'm not really i'm not really sure how i do it what are your favorite like films and tv shows to go towards because like i feel like there's something inside of the dna of your work that feels really cinematic Mm -hmm. and like you must have some basis of like cinema or or scope to like how you write a song when a gun pressed to your head like what do you have to say are like your favorite TV shows and films that, that like have built a, fa- create a foundation in your psyche? Well, and I do think about that. Like my favorite songs of mine is where I feel like I'm fully in like a scene, like a contained, it could be the whole scene or it could be just one of in the middle or the beginning of the end or something where it feels like I'm like transported into that thing. And then I'm, I'm just soundtracking it or that's just like part of, the world building. And this record feels most like that than any of the other ones, I think. That's just technically, I think. Like, it, technically, mm-hmm. there's a lot of ingredients that just immediately make that more communicated. I always heard it in my earliest songs because I knew what I intended those to be. Like, they were mm-hmm. demos, but I knew where, 
you know, they were like triggering certain things for me that they probably didn't for other people. So I felt the whole world in the demos, but this record feels like I, I have it all out there. I like Kieslowski movies, like The Double Life of Veronique. Yes, yes. Blue, oh my God. Colors. I was thinking about those a lot. I like Mike Lee movies. I just watched a Mike Lee movie last night. David Lynch for sure, especially in the beginning. And yeah. that was like a really yeah. transformative watch for me as a kid. Like I remember, I think I went to Lost Highway with my dad in the theater. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was, I don't remember, I must have been like 14, 15. But my dad did not care for it. He thought it was, you know, like dark sided. <laughs> and I was, and I told him I felt the same way, but I was obsessed with it and like read the screenplay and like everything about it. Like I'd never seen that specific kind of like campiness and but like darkness and nastiness. Like everything was there. Like everyone was hot, but it was also like off putting. And it was somewhat spiritual and mystical, but also really corny and, and dumb. <laughs> You know? Yes. Like, I loved all of that together. Felt very satisfying. I don't think I've ever shaken that. I don't I don't intend to. Oh, I love that. Oh my god. I also love the idea of you maybe like having a song inside of a Lynch movie. Like I feel like you could re-soundtrack Blue Velvet with like your voice. Oh my god, I would die. Like, how did you feel seeing your your song scoring one of my favorite TV shows, uh, How to Get Away with Murder? Because you're all over How to Get Away with Murder. They've used like every single song, like <laughs> not just the, like songs from the record that I thought would be used, but like like track nine. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. I love. I liked that show. I think I haven't watched. It just ended. You have to watch the finale. <laughs> It never really feels real. Like, uh, it just, yeah. I'm like, uh, I think it's because it's too much. Like, because it's too, like, of a real thing, it feels surreal to me. Like, hearing my song on yeah. a commercial or something, it just doesn't really even compute almost. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I totally hear that. I mean, that's how I feel. My mom gets so excited every time I'm in a magazine. And I think that, like, I was definitely excited the first time I was in GQ because I had a GQ subscription since I was little and I had a Vogue subscription since I was little. And so the first time I was in GQ and the first time I was in Vogue, I was like, <gasps> and then, like, the fourth time or the third time, I was sort of like, oh, oh the fourth time. Yeah. <laughs> But I was just sort of like, oh, this is cool. And my mom was like, aren't you so excited? Like, you look so good in this one. I'm like, it's work now, mom. It's just yeah. work. And I hate that, like, the things that should be fun for me have become work. In the same way that I'm sure that, like, your song scoring a TV show is now just like, oh, yeah, that was like another, it's another promotion at work. Or, like, this is like, you know, another thing at work. A little bit. Or also, like, just really taking that all in is just too overwhelming to me. Like, it was too yeah. weird for my ego to actually, like, it's not like I have, like, it's like an, I'm everywhere and I can't, like, get away with, can't go anywhere without, that's not like that at all. But even the small <laughs> amount of that that I get, if I really, like, acknowledge it, it's, like, it's it's bizarre. It feels weird to me, you know? No, I hear that. Does it feel weird now to maybe have a more, like, celebrated career than some of your friends who are making music when you were the shy one making music around them? I was friends with a lot of musicians and dated musicians, and I was around a lot of bands. But when I was younger and when I was going out and stuff like that, but I had never sang and I had never written any music before that first album. So nobody was thinking I, was, I could do that and just wasn't. So when I like put my songs out, everybody was just kind of like, what? <laughs> like, confused by it, you know? 
Now I'm still friends with a lot of people from when I first started making music. I mean, I asked that mainly because I feel, I think some of the things, I think what you really hit the head on, because I think that when I said like, it's work and blah, 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 like a lot of that is me allowing some of the more like fancy things that happen in my life to like not uh, overwhelm my ego. Yeah. Because it feels so weird that for like almost a decade, I was the playwright that like hadn't written a play and I had friends who were like really like doing the thing and like I was going to all their things and watching all their things and I still kind of feel and I was doing it secretly and not really telling people I was doing it and I do feel some weird shame for having success in like as big a way as I had when I know people who work really hard who also deserve so much success you know what I mean so I think that it makes you feel a little crazy it's hard to balance that because I want to actually like give myself credit and feel proud of myself too but I also don't want to, um, you know, it's just, I'm lucky. <laughs> yes. In a lot of ways, too. So. Yeah. And I think some people hate it when you say that you're lucky. They do? I think some people hate it because they're like, you work hard. And it's like, I know that. <laughs> but other people do, too. I think people think there's like a finite amount of luck or success. And then if someone else gets it, there's like less for them. I just don't believe that, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. That's how I think about it. Well, I remember when I had my first photo shoot, though, I quit my job. I was like, I'm not going. I was working at Fred Meyer. It was like this place where I was making <laughs> copies of keys and stuff yeah. and mixing paint. And then I was like, after I did this first photo shoot where I had like my shirt off in the woods or something for NME, I think. I was like, I'm not going back to work. <laughs> I really needed to go, too, because I didn't have any money. <laughs> so I don't know what I was thinking. But for a while, it was like, it was surreal in a really, like, thrilling way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm doing everyone a disservice. Why? I should ask you one of the questions that someone's sent, and I should also probably ask you more questions about this, like, like seminal album you have. But maybe you're done talking about your own album. I don't know. We can talk about whatever we want. Isn't that true? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I don't know. I just always feel guilty. I feel like so indebted to like the people who are watching this because they could be doing anything else. So I just feel like, oh, fuck, am I fucking up by not giving them what they came here for? Which is like more questions about Mike, Perfume Genius, his genius, his album. Like, you, you know, what type of guitar do you use when you play guitar? I mean, I think those are questions that people who like music want to know. Really? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) a lot of people ask me like what programs i write in and i'm like i don't know i mean i write all my demos in GarageBand. you do every single record i've made has my garage band demos elements of it in the official recording too so there's that oh my god well, because there's just some I'm things obsessed. I do at home where I'm like in a zone, you know, like some a lot of like the whispering or any kind of textural stuff where I feel like I'm in a trance that I'm not uh-huh. certainly going to be able to recreate like in the studio. So I just am like, well, I already did it. Let's put that in there. You know? Yes. Yes. Well, the f- first song I ever made, I made in GarageBand with my friend. And the thing I liked the most about it was that the GarageBand like, the like metronome kicks were in it. <laughs> And I was like, we got to keep that. Um, but again, I'm not a musician. But I, mm. I like the sounds on GarageBand. Yeah, I do too. It was the first, I, I think I used like a PC for the first record. 
I think it was like an Adobe program. And then ever since then, it's GarageBand on the same laptop that's like from 2000 or whatever. It's like eight, nine years old. How is it still working? I have no idea. I really don't. Because it's, well, maybe because I deleted everything but the music. That's all there is now. It's just like the music computer is super slow and chunky. Wow. Have you been asked to do a Mac commercial yet? No. They don't pay, I think, Mac. I think it's for the promotion. That's just something. I don't know why I'm talking about that. I know. Apple pays so much. They do? Oh, I take it back. They did a quarantine. I I shouldn't tell everyone this, but whatever. I was one of the people they asked to, like, interview to do this quarantine, like, this is me and my Apple products thing. And they were going to pay $250,000. Well, I didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I auditioned and did not get it. Mm. But if I had, it would have been fucking major. I would have given all that money to like, you know, more playwrights. But for you sure. C'est la vie. C'est yeah, la that's vie. money. That's money for it's sure. It's such good money. How do you think about money now? Now that you're in a more successful place? I mean, I feel like um, money for indie musicians is always going to be fucked because you know, I've I've learned a lot from my friends who work in the music industry that like album sales don't really matter because everyone just streams now. Yeah. And all the real money comes from touring, but like you can't tour this album. Yeah. How, how are you thinking about money right now? I mean, yeah, touring is how we make most of the money. But I've also been lucky enough that like, you know, like people die in movies and stuff and they'll put my song in there. <laughs> you know, so I make... <laughs> Money from publishing, too. I don't know. I'm not very good with money. I'm not very good in, like, keeping track of my own money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because I'm not not really used to it. Is Alan the money guy in the house? He's definitely, like, the responsible one, you know? Yeah. I mean, not in, like, a frivolous way or, like, where I'm not, like, respecting and grateful for having it. I just don't, um, I just, like, I grew up that way. Like, my mom, when I went to the grocery store with my mom... If you wanted a magazine, you got the magazine. With my dad, you don't get the magazine. You don't need a magazine. You know what I mean? Like, what is that? And so I'm like more towards my mom. Like, if it's like $3 extra for delivery in 10 minutes, I'm like, yes, I want that. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, all the little, anything comfort, like, that is maybe where, like, having money has been, like, really amazing to me. Like, sheets. I have sheets now that I, like, heavily researched. They're linen, which I know is supposed to be uncomfortable, and I was worried about it. But oh my they're God. super comfortable. I'm super Wait, into that. what's your sign? I was about to Google Libra. it, but I can just ask you. You're a Libra? Yeah. What, when were you born? Sign? September 25th. Oh, my! that's my mom's birthday. Really? Yes, you are Libra born mom? on my mom's birthday. Yeah, when is I'm your a birthday? Gemini. Oh, okay. June that's compatible. 2nd. I know, we're deeply compatible. We have to make something together. For sure. We should make something together. I'm 100% down. When it, when you started following me, I had no idea why. I like freaked <laughs> the fuck out. And I, I almost had a heart attack because I just don't, I can't leave this live without letting it be known to everyone that for me, at least, writing complicated narratives about my sexuality and my like trauma and everything else has been like paramount to me since I saw Catherine Brie um, write Fat Girl um, or mm-hmm. Masser. Have you ever seen that film? No, I know about it's it, though. It's amazing. It's amazing. And 
for me, I felt like, you know, most of the writers that were able to get to really abject fucked up spaces in their psyches were mainly straight women. Mm-hmm. And to have like a queer man be able to like tell narratives that like I connected with as deeply as I did, even though we were from such different parts of the world, we had such different like lived experiences in a lot of ways. But I was able to like truly see myself inside of your lyricism. It's it was an incomparable gift, and it meant a lot to me that like we could start a internet friendship. Oh man, thank you. That's essentially all I'm ever trying to do, because I remember that's how I'm desperately looking for that all the time. You know what I mean? Or just some part of my underneath everything, or even right up front that I'm still unwilling to like accept or think, just to feel a companion in some somewhere else in that feeling. You know? Yeah. So. Um, apparently it's going to cut us off in a second. Oh, is um, it? Oh, yeah, 38 seconds. Of, there's 38. 38 seconds remaining. I was really oh, my God. What is you, the last? Finally. I know. It's so fun to talk to you. Me, you, and Alan have to have, like, dinner soon. For when sure. When this is all over. Yeah. My boyfriend is also the responsible one. Um, so okay. he hates that I Maybe get... Maybe we can, um, yeah, we can get them connected. <laughs> then I'll just get in the car when I'm supposed to. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm sure that he probably is good with this calendar in the same way that my boyfriend is. Yeah. So um, we'll set up some meeting. Yeah, we have five seconds. Them. Love you. Nice You're amazing. You. Love you too. Mike Hadrius, Jeremy O'Harris, thank you so much for joining us here on the Talk House podcast. If you liked hearing Perfume Genius talk on this conversation, he's also appeared on the Talk House podcast before in conversation with Lower Den's Jana Hunter. Check it out. Everyone we heard on the show today recorded themselves, and our producer is Mark Yoshizumi. Check out TalkHouse on all your favorite social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We got them all. And just like this talk was originally, we have some very cool TalkHouse podcasts live on Instas coming up. Follow us and you'll be the first to know. Our researcher was Samantha Small. The TalkHouse theme song, as always, was performed and composed by The Range. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. And I'm Josh Modell. Peace. And twonked out. <laughs> we here at TalkHouse recognize that in 2020, even more than usual, life has sometimes felt like a bit too damn much. So we partnered with the very rad nonprofit Sound Mind to bring our listeners a free mental health toolkit. Over at talkhouse.com slash soundmind, you'll find valuable resources that cover everything from coping with coronavirus anxiety and grief to depression and bipolar support to suicide prevention help. There's links to support groups and to sliding scale therapy. You can check out community-specific resources for BIPOC, Latinx, and LGBT-identifying folks, as well as frontline workers, parents, and musicians. These are tough, tough times, and we're all feeling it. We want to make sure our listeners and readers are able to get the help they may need, starting at talkhouse.com soundmind.